But now, outside of Christ, God loves no one unto eternal life. That is, he pursues no one with such an intimate love that he actually makes him a participant of eternal life unless he believes in Christ. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God remains upon him. Therefore, neither has God elected anyone outside of Christ. Johann Gerhard Welcome everyone, this is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, Adam Kuntz, to talk about the election controversy, or at least the beginnings of the election controversy in Lutheranism. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing great. How is the weather in lovely Fort Wayne, and do you have any news <laughs> to report to us? Uh, I, have, I have no news, and uh, the weather is gray, so that's a shock to nobody. <laughs> no one it feels strangely warmed <laughs> no come on it's kind of warm up here in north dakota so i'm enjoying the weather but yeah what what's the what's the thermometer say oh i'm not even sure what it is today i think right around freezing so you know generally oh, warm hey that's that's where we are too so <laughs> that's kind of pleasant here today i mean taxes are always going up but the weather's not too bad <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Well, gentlemen, we've summoned you all here uh, to talk about this great topic. We've had some technical setbacks. Everything's really been working against us to uh, to get it in the can, but I think we're finally going to do it. We're going to talk about election, predestination, and the controversy surrounding it in American Lutheranism in particular, but we're going to take the long road which is the word fitly way, the long and narrow road that leads right. to understanding. And so it's going to be a fun discussion. We'll see how far we get this episode. But first things first, why are we talking about this? And what are we talking about? We're talking about this because it is really the central theological controversy of something we have been talking about on the podcast, which is the forgotten era of the Missouri Synod. This overlaps pretty much entirely with that era you know, roughly from the end of the American Civil War to the beginning of the First World War. And it is the cause also of continuing differences between uh, Lutheran church bodies even after the 1920s or 1930s, including not just the, strictly speaking, the doctrine of the election of grace, as Paul says in Romans, or predestination, same thing as he says in Ephesians. It's not just the doctrine, although it is that. It's also all of the theological issues that crop up around the doctrine. Why do people disagree? How do they disagree? How do they think about the past? How do they think about the Bible? And so its effects, not just the controversy, but its effects really come down into the present among a variety of different Lutheran church bodies, not only the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Yeah, very good. Zellin, any any opening remarks? Yeah, I, I just to kind of build on that too, and you know, you're pointing out how it affects so much more than just the doctrine itself. We're going to see also, just to put it in a little bit different words, a different way of dealing with authorities, for example. You yeah. know, how do we approach the the Orthodox, you know, the kinds of things that they have said? Is that something that we need to, you know, accept without without even thinking about it, or is it something that we need to you know, critically evaluate and then, you know, process through it. So, yeah, that, that those questions of how we deal with the past is going to be one of the, the central issues of this controversy. But at the same time, we're also dealing with the, the doctrine itself, which is going to cause quite a stir. I mean, this is, right. this is something that goes on for quite a while, right? I don't think we can underestimate just how important the doctrine of election is to the Protestant Reformation. It's really one of the hallmarks of Protestant Christianity. And uh, I know that the P word makes some listeners nervous, but it's okay. That's historically what the movement's called. Uh, so <laughs> it is stressing, you know, the chief article of the Reformation, which is justification by faith and it's ancillary, which is justification by grace alone. And so 
if it is by grace, if it is the work of God, then the election question comes up into this. And so it should come as no surprise, given the theology that is recovered during the Reformation, that election really, at a certain point, comes front and center and becomes a a sticking point as far as our opponents are concerned. Yeah. What would you, I mean, if just like two minute summary, what, what is election, Willie? Like, what are we, what are we talking about just biblically when we talk Uh, about election? We are talking about the election of grace that God chooses purposes to save some, and that all those who are ultimately ushered into the kingdom of heaven at the last day are God's chosen. So that is election in the in the safest <laughs> definition I could think of. Yeah. The rub yeah. comes in with by what on what upon what basis are men elect? Right. So or is it is it God seeing the decision they would make for him, the decision to believe in him, looking down through time and choosing them based upon the decision they made? Is God electing them based upon the number of works that they did or is God saving them? through no merit of their own, but purely through his grace, is that a reason why God would elect someone? And the Lutheran right. church falls into that category. That it's going, to get a little, it's going to get a little messy here as we start to look at the historical understanding there. But generally, when we refer to the election of grace, we are talking about God in his divine mercy, choosing, electing to save some and accomplishing that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, there are all kinds of things that become complicated here, and there are a million questions surrounding it, but you gave me two minutes, so. Right. Right. (laughs) But I think that's that's a fair appraisal of the situation here, or of the, you know, fair definition from our perspective. The rub, every every Christian agrees with election to one degree or another. It's the internals that we disagree on. Right. You can't read through the epistles and not find the doctrine of election. The question is, how do we interpret the word, what's the right understanding? And so that's at the heart of the election controversy, is it not? Yeah, and that that is why whenever you see anyone discussing election or predestination, what you're getting is a very clear window, a very large, clear window into how he does theology, because it reveals so many ideas about how you draw doctrine from Scripture and how you relate to how people in the past talked about scripture and whether or not you have to quote harmonize the scripture by some by some method can you just let things stand the way they apparently look or does it all have to fit together in a certain way those are questions both in the time of the reformation and afterward as we're going to talk about in this episode but over the course of this series as we're talking about election mainly in american lutheranism you're going to see that time and time and time again yeah and it's it's still cropping up down to this very day and there's still a lot of misunderstanding and for the reason that you mentioned people become uncomfortable with certain conclusions and so they kind of try to hedge around it a bit right. or or to soften some sometimes what the word says about certain things it's also something that you just don't hear a lot about generally if you're, you know, sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Well, says the guy who didn't cut his teeth in a Presbyterian church, Shiite <laughs> Presbyterian church, you know. But right, you're 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 right. And, and from Lutheran pulpits it's not uh, mentioned. No, Lutheran pulpits and I mean besides the like six people in the OPC since your family has left. It's not, you know, it's not, there just aren't that many, there aren't that many, you know, people. Well, many called few chosen, you know. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I distinctly remember I went to, I went to a circuit meeting when I was in seminary of an unnamed circuit, you know, and there was a, a pastor who was close to retirement and we were studying article 11 of the formula of concord on election and he indicated great unfamiliarity with the idea you know this he wasn't maybe the biggest reader in the world well and well, if he had ever encountered hey, why read a book that you're going to make a vow to teach according to yeah, you know? right, right it's it's <laughs> just like the apple agreement or whatever just click here I've right read the yeah, terms and conditions. right right but this is yeah. but this but that's not an uncommon thing with regard to this doctrine 
Right. Or or you're, you'll hear a definition of it that is just so far beyond what we're talking about. Like, uh, right. well, all are elect. Right. Well, right. So now we're universalists. I mean, this right. is something something definitely sub biblical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As most platitudes tend to be. Yeah. <laughs> and what's what was funny was that you know the 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 teaching of the formula of Concord, you know, which is which is the biblical teaching about the election of a people, a peculiar people for the Lord, chosen before the foundation of the world, was just laid out in I don't know, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. And he goes, he goes, boy, I never heard that before. (laughs) Who's this Jesus character? Seeking true, you know, but like that, that to me was, was a measure of the, the unfamiliarity of this doctrine that scripturally is intended to comfort and strengthen God's people that no matter what vicissitudes they face, no matter what things they go through chosen by the lord's purposes they shall surely be saved yeah absolutely um you know none can snatch them out of my hand and and so on it's meant to be a comfort and then it just simply becomes something we're uncomfortable with so we don't (laughs) talk about it Uh, and so then we want to comfort with something less than that right you're you're probably okay because he doesn't get mad or anything so you can get away with it that's not that's not quite biblical comfort right yeah i think i know what i've encountered the trying to teach the doctrine of election, you know, people do get uncomfortable with it because they think it leads to certain kinds of conclusions that they don't think are, are worthy of God. Or they also, you know, some people, especially pastors, I think will try to come in and, and argue purely on the basis of I'm not this group of people, usually a Calvinist understanding. Right. Therefore I'm going to, define it in opposition to what I think they're teaching. Yes. But, yeah, absolutely. You know, without ever really stopping to say, you know, what is it that the scriptures actually say? It's more of what does he say so that I can figure out what I'm supposed to be saying? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And that's something that we've actually stressed on here in a number of episodes is that we need to, to define our doctrine in terms of what we actually believe rather than in terms of what we're not. The contrast is helpful, but so many times it's just, well, I'm not that guy over there. Right. And yeah. so, okay, well, well, what are you then? So you become a negative man. You know, you're just sort of the inverse of whatever is around. And uh, that, that part, that probably explains why sometimes in some of our apologetic circles, we, we just come across as contrarians to, to where no matter what is said, we're just going to say the opposite, you know, and. And so it can lead to some confusion and it's, it's meant well, as Zellwin's saying, like we we're trying to say, this is not our position, but then we yeah. can over define, I guess is, is what we're going with. No, that's, I mean, as we're going to talk about today, having a group that, that you know is wrong and then defining your own position in terms of the pr- particular wrong things about that group does not enable you actually to positively express the teaching of the Bible necessarily. And it's probably going to warp how you do try to express what you do find in the Bible positively. Your So your positive affirmation of biblical teaching is going to be skewed because what you're actually worried about is not expressing the Bible. That kind of comes second. But first of all, you're just worried about not being identified as the wrong group. And especially the the accusation that someone is a Calvinist is going to be massive in the election controversy. Strangely enough, not only in Germany, where that's one of your you know two major confessional competitors, there are Reformed and there are Catholics, and you know sometimes historically we've even taught people to think about everything else in Christianity besides Lutheranism as either Reformed or a Roman Catholic, but but strangely, even in America, which is so dominated by Arminian theology, I mean, there's a there's some kind of Methodist church, I believe, in every county in the United States. I mean, high energy boys there with their church. Yeah, they, they are high energy boys. Say what you will. <laughs> At least it's an ethos, right? <laughs> even in the United States, which is so Arminian, the uh, the the idea that someone is a Calvinist is gonna is gonna play a huge role in the election controversy to the extent that 
the Missouri Synod, when it went to a meeting of the Synodical Conference, I believe this is after Walther's death, so that the controversy has been going on for years at this point. And they're having, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not Synodical Conference, it was a free conference. They went to a free conference and they refused to have social doings with anyone that called the Missouri Synod Calvinist. That's how keenly the accusation was felt. So, Oof. yeah, using names for people and for doctrines rather than expressing things positively, it's not only inaccurate, I think it also just causes great bitterness. Because well, I, it, I think you're a pietist for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that keenly, and I am experiencing great bitterness now. So. <laughs> but but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It becomes this it becomes this great insult to to call someone a Calvinist or a Reformed, and then of course it, it almost has no power anymore. So not not only because because it, uh, nobody cares about theology, but but because <laughs> it's been used as an insult so much that it just doesn't mean anything. Insert a pain meme here. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> you, think this, you think this has power over me? <laughs> there you go. You know, and and so as we go through this, we will define our terms rather narrowly right. because because we need to. It's like you, you mentioned the reformed thing. Like we use that word way too broadly, and it's and it's a usage, frankly, that's only unique to like American Lutherans. To call right. every everything that's not Lutheran but not Catholic to call it Reformed is just, <laughs> right. you know, it, well, it would be like a, it would be like a trad cat being like all you Prodies are the same, right? You know, well, right. as the Protestants say, well, what, what does that mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's it is what it is, and right. um, in the spirit of Cam McKenzie, we will narrowly define our historical terms for the sake of education's sake, and it's just the Christian thing to do. So we will move on now into the, well, we've only got a few minutes in the segment, but let's begin to talk about where we should go in the Bible to to begin the discussion on election. You're going to start with the two sedes doctrinae that are most obvious. So the terms election of grace, that one comes from Romans and predestination comes from Ephesians. So you're going to look just taking it by sections, which I think is most helpful for understanding what Paul's talking about. Romans 9 through 11 is talking about the election of a peculiar people, especially to articulate there that God has chosen for himself a people who trust in him, not a people who have a certain genealogy. Specifically, he has not chosen people because they are ethnically Jewish, but he has chosen a people um, from before the foundation of the world who will trust in him. Predestination in Ephesians 1 is a discussion about the church and its relationship to the head of the body, uh, Christ, its bridegroom. There are, other, there are lots of other places. I mean, the idea of God choosing a people for himself is, of course, all over the Old Testament. You also have Jesus talking in Matthew 25 about the sheep being chosen from before the foundation of the world. A salvation prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. Yeah. I mean, you could argue idea, John 6 speaks to this as well. Yeah, John 6. And then yeah. the other place that the confessions go extremely frequently, and it's very beautiful because it comes up every year in the Easter season, is John 10. And mm-hmm. you quoted that earlier, Willie. The idea that the Good Shepherd passage is a passage about the assurance that no matter what occurs, what happens in our lives, no matter what we suffer, no one will snatch them out of my hand, Christ says, concerning his people. And that that really shows you, I think John 10 brings home really well, that the election of a people is is a doctrine of enormous comfort. You also get this expressed, this is not the Bible, but how firm a foundation, that's part of why I love that hymn so much. It's not even, you know, Lutheran. That's fine. Well, uh, I mean, we like it here at a word fitly spoken. Right, yeah, we're fine with it. Because even when gray hair is shallow temples adorned like lambs that will still in my bosom be born, that is John 10. No matter what happens, the good shepherd is carrying us. He's taking us. He is leading us to our heavenly home. That's the purpose of the doctrine. It's also important to point out, you know, that doctrines have their own biblically mandated uses, that election is not brought up by Paul or John or anyone else in order for people to sort of just wonder and make stuff up and figure out, well, what do I really think about this? It's always expressed for the purpose of assuring God's people 
that they have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And so their salvation is utterly secure. Yeah, absolutely. And with regard to something like, like if you're interested in this or haven't really dipped your toes in it, if you even started with something like Romans 9 to 11 and just looked up the biblical illusions that Paul uses, right. Right. You, you would be in really good shape as far as this is concerned. I think I think you made a, a great point there, though, Adam, because I think very often when we approach the subject of election, and I think the reason why people, you know, get so uncomfortable with it is because they are trying to take it out of that biblically those biblical bounds, right? Trying trying to make it, you know, a question of well, this is how I'm going to know, you know, who is going to be saved in particular. And, you know, and who that means, especially in terms of, and it often becomes personal, like, you know, my own family or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But that's right. really not the point of why God talks about this. Right. It's like you right. say, it's meant to show us that, you know, nothing can take us away from Jesus, that we yeah. are secure in him. Right. Yeah. And it's not meant to be just some theological exercise to say, how do we peer deep into this? This is a difficult doctrine. Let's wrestle with it. It's It's given or it's revealed to us. For, for this specific purpose. So very good stuff. Well, we've got more on election and predestination coming right after this. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and Adam Kuntz talking about the election controversy. Well, we had a fun first segment, kind of nailing down our terms and talking about just what election is. And now we're going to move into the historical section. Now, the election controversy is something that happens among American Lutherans in the 19th century predominantly. That's what we're we're wanting to talk about. But we told you we were going to give you the full picture, so we're going to go back to the beginning and start with Luther. How does Luther factor into this equation? He factors in as a guy who wrote a ton of stuff and in reflecting on what he thought personally was actually worthwhile and should be preserved after his death. He listed only the 1525, the bondage of the will, his reply to Erasmus's diatribe on the will, and his small and large catechisms. He said the rest of it could kind of go by the wayside. I want to keep bondage of the will and the small and large catechisms. And what's weird about that is that the small and large catechisms obviously get picked up into the 1580 Book of Concord and used in Lutheranism thereafter. The bondage of the will really does not, and this is a point that is made, I think, really well in a book we'll throw in the notes by Robert Kolb about Luther and the people who came after him talking about election is that in even the most adoring biographies of Luther, sometimes the bondage of the will, as much as Luther thought of it, is mentioned. It's only mentioned. They don't even say, this is what he said. And in many biographies, it's not even mentioned. So it has this weird life where it matters a lot for Luther's theological method. It's where he asserts very, very clearly the clarity of Scripture. But it sort of gets dropped, including some of his assertions. It's going to be referred to as clarification in the formula of Concord, but it largely gets dropped. And the guy who becomes really formative for how Lutheran theology is going to 
articulate itself systematically is Melanchthon, who has a different understanding, at least by the end of his life, on uh, the bondage of the will. So it's really complex. And the reason to start with Luther is to see that this has been complex and contested from the beginning. So the fact that it became controversial in American Lutheranism is not really surprising at all. Yeah, isn't that just typical, though, of Luther says, keep the bondage of the well, keep the catechisms, get rid of everything else. And what do we do? <laughs> we keep everything else and forget about the bondage of the will. So. Right. <laughs> and write myriads of essays on, about on the Jews. <laughs> yeah, this is like what we're presenting is like the Rodney Dangerfield theory of Luther, which is that, exactly. um, <laughs> Luther, Luther gets adulation and statues and lots of other things that he probably would feel uncomfortable with. But like the major book that he says, read this, <laughs> this was good. We're like, man, eh, not so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's not a hard read. I mean, the concepts no, may be, no. but no, as far as getting through it, yeah, I mean, yeah. not to be confused with Jonathan Edwards' freedom of the will, um, no, which is not at all like, you know, agrees in some points, but much harder to uh, slog through. Right. And there are several good editions of the bondage of the will, if, if anybody wants to um, check them out. And there's probably some public domain ones floating around out there that somebody could could read. How How would we summarize the bondage of the will i mean how would we if we want to boil it down for this purpose of this podcast as you mean the book or the concept of the bound will uh kind of both because you know we're we're talking about luther in particular here but you know we need to right. kind of define our terms again and say you know what do we mean by a bound will you know and how does luther articulate that and what is it that i don't know makes people uncomfortable about what he's saying you know because obviously we we go a different direction from here so you know, maybe just try to, to clarify our position a little bit here. Well, the the bound the bound will is the 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 issue behind the idea that the will is somehow bound and does it does not have free choice. The issue behind that is the question of divine necessity, how and why events occur, and this is where people begin to feel very awkward, both about the question itself, how and why do the things that occur occur and also luther's very uncompromising articulation that things occur by divine necessity now this will be separated out when we get to the formula between the notion of foreknowledge and predestination and so we'll explain that distinction but the basic idea of divine necessity is what makes people so uncomfortable with the bondage of the will and it made erasmus extremely uncomfortable he responded to it, but it made him uncomfortable because it seemed to make exhortations to virtue sort of pointless in Erasmus' reading. And and what you have, and, and this is, you know, it's just at the time of the Reformation when Luther is kind of the last of the medieval theologians, and I'm and I'm and 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 in a way the first of the modern theologians. And I don't mean that in any negative or positive way. But what we have is with Luther, you have a resurgence of Augustinianism, of Augustine's theology coming back. You could argue that there is some Thomism as well present, or at least a, a Thomistic influence. And with Erasmus, then, you have humanism coming around, not the secular humanism that we hear right. about on Fox News all the time, but true, <laughs> true humanism. People who don't want Christmas trees. Yeah, <laughs> right. My red Starbucks cups. And so... There, there is a clash of philosophies happening here right. too. Approaches right. to the scripture, understanding it's about God and the nature of man, and so there are several underlying things happening at the same time. So, although Erasmus and Luther are both Christian, their conception of the world is entirely different, and it's really as if they are from two different worlds in a way. No, that's I, that's a great way to say it because it's 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 also helpful to see that this term that comes into existence much, you know, many centuries later, worldview. And when we talk about a Christian worldview, that is really dependent on a lot of other things besides simply information about the Bible or Christian history. Because if you if you read Bondage of the Will backwards, it's it's in some ways easier if you're starting. Because Luther only makes his positive articulation of how the will is bound and then how the, the will is freed through purely through the gracious intervention of Jesus Christ. 
freed for slavery to Christ, in fact, uh, and yeah. therefore still bound. He does that at the end of the work. Most of the work is his response to Erasmus's diatribe. And the rhetoric is amazing. It's entertaining. It's sometimes hilarious, <laughs> such as when he described, you know, Erasmus has a really high estimation of humanity and thinks that human beings and human virtue and human accomplishment should be really impressive, right? Well, the eternal Anglo, you know? Yeah. And, and, and Luther uses an impolite term for, you know, you know, human excrement and says, basically, what you're serving up when you talk about the free will is excrement in silver dishes. You know, oh, so it's a really nice presentation, but that's all you got. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the banter is hot and heavy. What Erasmus says, his concerns are a little bit valid, you know, as far as is there any reason for then a Christian to strive for virtue? And I'll, I mean, that, that, you know, or to, or, to, or to do good works if this is yeah. the case. Right. And I think he's, he's a little bit prophetic in that some people will take chunks of Luther's theology and then live their life in the way that Erasmus feared they would. If you mm-hmm. take Luther and the bondage of the will and put it inside of Luther's other sermons and writings, he mm-hmm. does not become a libertine. He does not, no. he does not see no. his doctrine as leading to that. Right. And so the only way in which Erasmus is, Erasmus is right is when people are only kind of spot checking Luther here and there and pulling chunks out and building a supposed Lutheran theology around it, they end up making Erasmus look correct. Right. Because right. they're not careful with what they're doing with Luther's doctrine. Right. And and therein is the rub. And Erasmus is right, and Luther is right, that what we believe has actual consequences. And it actually informs the way in which we go about our Christian lives. Not even our Christian lives. Everybody believes something and orders their life around that. Right. And and so, you know, does Luther's doctrine then turn men into, or does divine necessity rather turn men into robots? To what degree are we free? And Luther yeah. will at least make room for some small amount of freedom. You know, you can choose what pair of shoes you put on, that kind of right. thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the formula is going to do the same thing. But in, in spiritual matters, you are not free. Uh, you're either bound to Satan or bound to Christ. Right. And there is the best way to keep to keep ourselves on the rails here, because we can take this up a level, talk about divine providence and the way in which God orders whatsoever comes to pass. And then we're peering into questions that we're not supposed to ask. That the Bible does affirm that the Lord is moving and, and, and ordaining things. And yet it also affirms man's responsibility right. and man's you know, wicked choices time and time again. Right. So, but we're back to what you, you spoke about in segment one, where there, there are tensions here. And I won't say apparent contradictions or something like that, but there are tensions within the scripture because the scripture affirms both God being sovereign and man being responsible. Yeah. I don't think you can escape either of those. Yeah. Right. And you have to let them both stand because that's how the scriptures do. And otherwise, you end up with just sophistry, trying to explain one half away. Well, I think one of the things to remember when we're talking about like the, the will being bound in this sense and talking about God's control over things, the reason why that comes into the discussion of the election controversy, why that comes into discussion of election at all, is because ultimately that means then our salvation depends upon God and on God alone. Right. It's it's not our personal goodness. It's not our personal choices. It's nothing within ourselves that makes a difference as to why we are saved, but God's pure and free choice alone. Right. 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 So when we're, when we're talking about election then, and the election unto grace, you know, the election unto salvation, we are talking about God choosing, apart from anything within ourselves, choosing some unto eternal life. And we want to keep that kind of distinction clear because like Luther is emphasizing in the bondage of the will, you know, we don't have anything to do with that. And so that's why this is an important discussion to begin, you know, discussing why, you know, why the controversy arises in the first place. Right. Totally. And the problem 
one problem that people have when they read theology from the 16th and 17th centuries is that being unfamiliar with Aristotle, they're unfamiliar with the various ways in which the term cause is used at this time. But even if you understand that an instrumental cause is just sort of a means, when that term is going to be used both within Melanchthon's writings and then later on in the period of Lutheran orthodoxy, as soon as you begin to talk about man's will or alternatively, in term, strictly speaking, in terms of election, faith as some kind of cause of election, you have now reintroduce something in order to explain a question that you had, which is, why are some saved and not others? Right. You have reintroduced a term that the scripture doesn't actually use at all in talking about election. Uh, scripture talks about God's decision. It talks about Christ's merit. Uh, it does not talk about man in talking about election. It talks about man in talking about damnation but not about election. And this is why the issue of how do we handle scripture comes up between Luther and Erasmus. It comes up as, you know, this is the basis of what we're saying at the beginning of the formula of Concord. We just restate what scripture in the beautiful phrase, pure, clear fountain of Israel. We just restate what scripture has supplied us. And we let those things stand because what's interesting is when Erasmus is sort of backed into a corner and realizes, I don't maybe actually have a leg to stand on as far as just Bible passages that have been brought up. (laughs) What he says is, well, you know, who knows? Who knows? And, and, (laughs) And scripture, what's interesting about scripture is that scripture is only ever obscure to people who don't want to understand it. And that's what Luther says. He says, scripture is obscure to those whose hearts are darkened. The issue in the understanding of scripture is the darkness of man's heart, not, not the darkness of God's word. No, that's, that's an excellent point. And it's, it's a good thing you also bring up the question of Aristotle here too, because much of the later problems that we're going to encounter, in my opinion, in Lutheran Orthodoxy is the re- reintroduction of Aristotelian distinctions right. back into theology. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah. And so this, this desire to be clear excessively clear in the sense <laughs> leads them into yeah. some serious problems. And yeah, and you're right. And Melanchthon is going to serve the same purpose in sort of intra Lutheran discussion that, that sometimes Calvinists do, which is that he becomes a kind of boogeyman. Right. And it's important not to think of human beings in that way <laughs> uh, because of their complexities. And, and also because it, if you, you know, if you think of, if you think of Melanchthon as in and of himself the problem, and Luther in and of himself as the solution, you will not have understood what Luther is saying. Um, right. You will not have understood that Luther doesn't claim to be personally right about everything, and that the distinction between them is not a personal distinction. Like Luther is always just like a courageous lion, and Melanchthon is always cowardly, and he 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 has to wait until Luther's dead to say what he really thinks, and how much he just loves humanity and just thinks humanity is wonderful. And Luther could never say that and couldn't handle it, and Melanchthon can't say it until he's dead. That's sort of the conspiracy theory version of Luther and Melanchthon, but it it certainly endures <laughs> in the Missouri Synod. I mean, it's in. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's in Dal Benti, you know, the historical introduction to the Book of Concord. It's in Richard Kemmerer's The Melanchthonian Blight. You know, the issue, however, is not personality in in every sense. I mean, sometimes wouldn't you rather be clear and articulate and charitable instead of right. just boorish? You know, like Luther is not in and of himself sinless. The issue is that methodologically, Luther realizes that I'm not allowed to say more or less than Scripture says. Whereas right. Melanchthon will sometimes let his curiosity push him into saying things that are not, strictly speaking, scriptural and eventually either are error or lead someone else easily into error. And I think also, just to kind of put you know a more human spin on Melanchthon as well, you know, he's not just a, a human-loving robot, as it were. <laughs> Ironically, Mel- yeah. <laughs> Melanchthon is also getting into a time period in which Luther didn't have to deal with to the same degree, where Lutheranism is starting to have to fight for its life against competing confessions. And even to the point of where, you know, there's always this looming threat that the the imperial authorities are going to come in and just wipe everything out. And so there's always this 
need within Lutheran orthodoxy, starting in Melanchthon, to be absolutely clear about what you're saying, because then you're able to say against your opponents, you know, this is what we actually believe. Because you can't just be wishy-washy muddled about this. You need to have a certain clarity just in order to survive. Right, right. So I I think that's important to keep in mind as well. And although it is not a legal challenger in Melanchthon's lifetime in terms of imperial legislation, it is definitely a theological challenger to Melanchthon, and that is what will come to be called Reform Protestantism or, more strictly, Calvinism. Right. And their articulation of the bondage of the will is Melanchthon perceives as off. Right. And so it's going to be important not only for Melanchthon, but much more so, as we'll talk about in the next segment, for Lutheran Orthodoxy that we are able to distinguish how we articulate the election of grace or predestination differently from Calvinists who have a different Christology, who have a lot of differences. So do we differ from them and how do we differ from them on the election of grace? And this is just not something that in 1525 Luther has to care about. Right. And that's that's the trouble. We always want to read later definitions and later understandings back into the text. And it's it's really hard not to do that, right? And right. and so it's it's something we have to constantly keep in mind as we're reading. You know, Theodore Beza doesn't exist yet. It's just you know <laughs> he's coming, but he's not there yet. Luther's not talking to him. He was summoned by a demon only later, <laughs> <laughs> according to God's sovereign decree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, we're at time. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back. You're listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, and Adam Kuntz talking about election, Luther, and all kinds of fun stuff. So we've talked about Luther and Erasmus, which are which is the first real struggle in this debate. And now we're moving on into another age of Lutheranism. The doctrine of election will be enshrined in the formula of Concord. And from there, we start to enter into more debate about election. Now, to me, it's interesting that a doctrine that is settled in the Book of Concord is still, shall we say, debated, or there's still questions about it, or perhaps different ways right. of interpreting that. What, yeah. what do we make of that? Well, I mean, you know, we have never argued about the nature of the law after. <laughs> I, I share your shock. <laughs> right. Imagine my shock. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like the formula of Concord is not only a record of stuff that they were going to argue about, you know, in the middle and late. 16th century, it's also like a record of, okay, this is what you guys are going to be arguing about the rest of the time. You know, until Jesus comes back, like the Lutheran world. Be- you know, just keep arguing with each other so that you can abuse yourself and in, in various ways. you finally realize ways. that you're supposed to exhort to good works, like just circle back and start asking the question again. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's totally right. And and it, it's even, I mean, ironically, based on what we said about the, the actual non-use of the bondage of the will, relatively speaking, which Kolb says, you know, hey, people cared about this at the time, but it wasn't extensively reprinted in Luther's own lifetime um, until, you know, the collected works that begin to come out. It's really only in the 19th century that the bondage of will gets picked back up as a big thing, partly also just for philosophical reasons, not strictly speaking theology. 
But the formula references the bondage of the will. It says, look, if you want to understand this position more that we're trying to articulate, which we we ourselves have articulated on on this episode, uh, if you want to understand this better, go read the bondage of the will. But you know that's not that's not quite where things go. Partly because the historical pressures just change so drastically, as we talked about, and the big problem that Lutheranism faces as a confession is both you know sort of political and legal, as Zellwin is articulating, and simultaneously theological, especially with Reformed Protestantism. And so the questions change, but it is notable that pretty much everyone we're going to talk about in this segment believed himself to have a quia subscription also to Article 11 of the Formula of Concord. So then, Zellwin, we're going to move from the Formula of Concord then into the age of Lutheran orthodoxy, where things get a little complicated, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's putting it simply. Because <laughs> <laughs> when we're dealing with the age of Lutheran orthodoxy, I mean, we've talked about that before on the podcast, basically the period following the Formula of Concord from about 1580 through most of what we would call the, the 17th century, maybe even down as late as the mid-18th, you know, down to 1750, I think is the absolute latest. Sure. But this is the period of the great dogmaticians. This is the period of a Protestant, uh, I guess you could call it scholasticism, because they're using similar methods yeah. As, yeah, the, right. as the medieval scholastics did. Basically, again, this desire to articulate and to clarify their position in lots of different ways. And probably the, the most notable and probably the, the most readily available for our listeners would be that of Johann Gerhard, who himself lived in the, uh, the early se- um, 17th century, kind of concurrent with the Thirty Years' War, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. And his, his Lotzi, or as it's been translated, his Commonplaces, is one of the kind of premier works to go to for any kind of questions. I mean, the things like what, 20 volumes long or something like that? Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> it's enormous. It's enormous and it is blindingly clear. It is. It is. But it's also <laughs> full of these Aristotelian distinctions, you know, Correct. causes and all yes. that. So it can be a little dense for someone who's not totally on board with you know understanding all those terms but yeah. it is it is very clear about what it is he's trying to yeah. say you must read aristotle's uh, prior and posterior analytics before you before you do gerhard otherwise you're just going to be like completely what's lost. this guy even doing yeah right right yeah 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 i mean the importance of aristotle for 17th century european intellectual life cannot cannot be overstated everyone is using him uh, his methodology is everywhere. So this is a massive difference between Gerhard and Luther. Right. Luther, who is, you know, as is his custom, openly abusive of Aristotle. <laughs> More or less from the beginning, you know. This is, this is a guy who basically starts out his sort of, not his public career as, you know, as a, as a teacher of the church, but, but you know, his, his publishing and, you know, disputational career with a disputation against scholastic theology. You know, this is, that's Luther. Right. I don't have all the answers as to how and why this came back in such a big way, but but, but certainly by Gerhard's time, uh, Aristotle is everywhere. And that that is, I think, going to matter a lot for how he articulates election. Oh, very much so. Because the way that he's ultimately going to articulate it, the, the famous intuitu fidei, which we'll get to in just a second here, is very much dependent on these Aristotelian distinctions and understanding a very logical kind of order, which kind of undergirds it. So right. Gerhard is, is struggling as hard as he can to clarify this position of, of faith in, in regards to election, again, so that he's able to distinguish himself from what he perceives as a wrong position. Well, what what is the, this is where you know, we don't believe in white magic on, on this podcast. Um, we don't, but, but this is where we summon former or present Calvinists. <laughs> what is, what is the, what is the Calvinistic monster of which Gerhard and others are so concerned to be, to be distinguished from um, what, what, what would a Calvinist say on election that is so different from Lutheranism? Let's, let's be clear about that. 
that God decreed certain ones would be sent to hell. Yeah, that's the, so it's, it's the, que- it's the question. It's double is predestination. It's double predestination. Okay. Okay. Do we want to unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think definitely. Okay. What you have is, what, what we w- would agree on, is that election unto salvation purely by grace, work of God. The disagreement comes in, what do we do with those then who aren't elect? Yeah. And so it's a question of, does God decree that they are reprobate, that they right. are consigned to perdition? Right. I mean, in a sense, God's going to condemn those who go to hell, but that's this, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about before time, at the, whenever election to salvation takes place, at that point, does God also decree to damn the mass? And that's what Lutherans are trying to avoid. They see that as a monstrous decree because God desires all men to be saved. So right. he would not decree that men be damned. And so you're still left with this problem that God still elects some and passes over others. And so what's the difference? And I think for a lot of people on the outside looking in, they're going to not see a difference at all here because you're still, you still have that. Even in our scheme, you have, even in the Lutheran uh, understanding, you still have God not saving some. Calvinists would agree that God, in a sense, would desire all to be saved, and yet they're not going to be, right? And they, and they have a whole other, they have more doctrines that, that kind of spring from this. But it's the question of, does God merely pass over, or has he decreed that he will pass over? Has he decreed that this will be so? Yeah, decreed reprobation. And, yeah, and, and that, that's the difference. It's, it's does he decree it or not? And that sounds like we're splitting hairs here, but it is a, it is a pretty big distinction once you look yeah, at it. Yeah, totally. And, and it's, it's also important to say that Calvinists were not the first people in church history to profess a decree of reprobation, to profess double predestination. I mean, Certainly. as far as I know, this is Augustine. This is also Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, people um, people will try to say Augustine doesn't do it, and you you kind of got to you just read it, and it's yeah, right no, there. I think, it's I think you just kind of roll your eyes when you're like, well, again, it goes back to you don't have the magic key. You would understand if you did. Um, it certainly seems to at least it's not as fully orbed as you'll get in later Calvinism. Right, right. And we're talking about post Calvin. You know, right. remember the five points of Calvin or Calvinism are post John Calvin, but yeah. But it certainly seems to be there, and certainly in Thomas Aquinas. But Aquinas writes so much that you could pretty much find whatever you want in there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's this question of the divine decree. And then you come into this other question of, okay, what is God looking at when he elects? Does he see men who have fallen into sin, and in his grace, does he choose to save some? Or, without even looking at the fall of man into sin, does he decide to save some? and not others. And that's an interesting Calvinist debate that you have. And and so it's a question of, does he look in view of the fall and make the election, or does does he elect to save some and then decree that the fall will happen? Right. So that he can bring it about. And that's important because this is this development is what the Orthodox Lutherans are going to be dealing with, with regard right. to Reformed theologians. Exactly. And at least in terms of Gerhard, and I do want to make it clear when I say this, Gerhard's understanding of Calvinist doctrine. And I, am, I put it that way because sometimes when you're dealing with these debates, the way that they understand something and the way that their opponents are actually articulating something aren't necessarily the same. But Gerhard's understanding of Calvinist doctrine is the latter. The idea that God, without even ever looking at anyone, in a sense, chooses yeah. who's going to be saved and right. who's not going to right. be saved. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and then in terms of the order in which he understands Calvinist theology, he says that God chose who's who is going to be saved and then he elects Christ to be their savior. So in that sense that mm-hmm. order that Christ mm-hmm. follows yeah. the election, uh-huh. Gerhard thinks what he's saying is, is that that makes God in saying that he's only really sending Christ only for those whom he chose. Right. Okay. And, and, Which would be a Calvinist position, to be fair. Right. Okay. I, th- I think that modern Calvinism <laughs> wants to soften itself sometimes and say, yeah. well, no, see, his because his, Calvinists don't believe that Christ's atonement was for everyone. 
but they've started to soften it, you know, uh, over the years. And it'll be something like, well, it's sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. That's not what historic Calvinism says. And when you get into the really hardcore, you know, traditional Calvinists going back several centuries, you'll even find some of them saying things like, the only reason that the non-elect receive any kind of common grace, like rain or something like that, is for the sake of the elect. They just happen to be occupying the same space and enjoying some of the benefits. <laughs> some of them do take it to that extreme. Yeah, that's, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> that's, that's sometimes called hyper-Calvinism, but even then, that's a term that that is kind of not not really helpful. Right. Um, because, right. but but I do think that some modern Calvinists have softened their position because this isn't what you see in in a lot of you know true true Cal, true Reformed theology that that you'll find, especially after Beza and, and similar. Uh, in Calvin, it gets a little tricky. Calvin is kind of like Luther in that way, where he's sort of the first guy, and so his name is forever associated with whatever comes after him. Yeah. But there are some differences. There are some yeah. developments. He notably got to write hilariously, but less famously, on the bondage of the will to a man named Piggyus. So <laughs> that one needs to make a comeback. Um, That's right. At least with somebody's like you know username on a theological uh, message board. Well, don't give him any ideas. Yeah. Be another sock account for some Lutheran somewhere. Piggyus was wrong. So, <laughs> but well, to to maybe to kind of take it the next step here, just so yeah. we can get through all of it here. Gerhard then, basically the way he begins his argument is he says, no, that's not the right order. God first elected Christ to be our Savior, and then following that, he then chooses the elect. Okay, so his his point is, and, and this might sound like, again, might sound like splitting hairs to us, but his point is, is as long as Christ is the, the cause of the election, as long as Christ is the first step in God's order of decrees, then he he sees that as being a much more biblical kind of presentation. Yeah. That Jesus is the reason why we are elected. Jesus is the reason why we are saved, and it's not because we're say you know we are chosen and then Jesus is sent to us, which yeah. is two very different things. Right. So, so what did he mean that we are elected in view of faith in tui tu fide? What did he What do you mean by that in this order? Well, in this order. After that step where he, you know, he says, okay, now he's choosing the elect, God's decreeing the elect, he, Gerhard makes the argument that faith then becomes a consideration, and he, he always stresses that it's a consideration, he never says that it's an actual straightforward cause, yeah. that God looks forward into the future, and he sees those who believe in him and who persist in that belief until death. That's a really key qualification, like the last part that you just said. It is. That's because it explains what the issue is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, so, so when we're talking about election and the bondage of the will, we're also talking about something that in, in American theology, generally, it, it appears in a lot of places, gets colloquialized as once saved, always saved. Right. 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 And then with Gerhard, too, in this, you know, that that persistence and the reason that's such a problem for us is because then, you know, it's it's possible, at least in Gerhard's presentation of it, to have faith but not be elect. Okay, Mm. because you fall out of faith at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So where the and he's trying very, very hard to avoid conclusions that I think are going to crop up, which is why this is going to become a controversy in the 19th century. Yeah. You know, he keeps saying things like faith is not the reason why, you know, we are elect, you know, faith is (laughs) in all these different things. But then because he puts it in that that persistence of faith, you know, that in view of what is going to happen and God, even if God is the one who gives it, I mean, he, he says that too, you know, that faith is not our work. It's not our production. You know, it's not like we believed and God said, okay, you believe, so I'm going to pick you. That would be a cause of election. Right. But even if God gave it to you, he's still saying that it's only those who persist in that faith that will ultimately be saved. Yeah. Which is, and ultimately be the elect, which is, frankly speaking, the problem. Right? <laughs> and I mean, to be clear, like, 
Gerhard doesn't start. He's not. He's not the first person to use the phrase in view right. of faith. Nor will he at all be the last person. But he's he's most accessible probably to the listeners because he's most translated to English, and you can get a taste for how this is, why this comes up, how it's said, and then why it becomes such a problem. Now, the issue, especially for the Missouri Synod, is that not only do we not want to be called Calvinists, but the Missouri Synod is also really, I think, pretty much uniquely devoted to the period of Lutheran orthodoxy among all American Lutheran groups, uniquely. We use a dogmatic textbook prior to Peeper, so for a very long time, called the Beyer-Walther Compendium, which is Walther's just sort of edited version of a Lutheran scholastic textbook uh, in dogmatics. We uh, require people to know enough Latin to take the dogmatics courses. We are so into Lutheran orthodoxy, almost uniquely, as a set of discourses that we're familiar with. We know these guys. We actually read them. And so when someone points out, as they will in the 19th century, hey, the way that CFW Walther is talking about election does not agree with the Lutheran Orthodox fathers, that is simultaneously shocking and also potentially problematic. That's kind of a weasel word, but it's a big problem for the Missouri Synod generally because we have been building so much of our theology and our practice on Lutheran orthodoxy of the 17th century. And then we find out that we have big problems in how they talk about this really central issue of of election. Right, right. And maybe just as a way of kind of clarifying that even just a little bit more with Gerhard in particular, you know, everything you said is, is right on target. But what kind of complicates this even more is that Gerhard ties election and justification as he presents it so closely together. Yeah. And because he says right. justification comes by faith, yeah. therefore, yep. you know, we only believe by faith. <laughs> therefore, we are only elect yep. by faith. Yep. Yep. You know, yep. so it's this, it's this natural, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a very tight kind of logical system. Yeah. I mean, I will give him that. Yeah. You know, he thought this stuff through. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. And that, that issue of how the article on election and the article on justification are related to each other and whether they have to work in the exact same way is mm-hmm. going to be one of the central issues that's going to be different between how the Missouri Senate articulates election and how um, its opponents are going to talk about it. Yeah. Well, guys, we're coming up on the end of the episode. Any final notes before we um, conclude part one? There's so much that a person could read on this. Um, We'll put some of it in the show notes. One thing to pick up if you're very interested in this is a new volume in the Walther's work series from CPH just called Predestination. And that has stuff that has never existed in English before, including an essay called A Dogmatic History where Walther talks about and assesses this massive array of different Lutheran Orthodox fathers, including Gerhard, and how he thinks things came about and why they said it the way they said it, and especially how they were wrong. Hmm. Very good. Zellin? I mean, I would always encourage our listeners to pick up Gerhard and to, you know, try to slog through him, understanding that there are going to be things that, because we're not familiar with Aristotle, that are going to be a little bit harder to understand. But he does express himself very clearly, regardless, in some places, that it's very difficult not to see his point in the way that he's presenting many of these things. So, you know, the the, the translated volumes from uh, Concordia Publishing House of Gerhard, you know, on creation and predestination, especially the first, on that section, chapters uh, 9 and 10, are really quite important for this discussion so good stuff gentlemen thank you very much hey thank you this has been a word fitly spoken if you like what you heard and want to know more check us out wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly i'm willie grills here with zellin heidi and adam kuntz god love you and god bless
omnipotence and foreknowledge of God, I repeat, utterly destroy the doctrine of free will. Doubtless it gives the greatest possible offense to common sense or natural reason that God, who is proclaimed as being full of mercy and goodness and so on, should of his own mere will abandon, harden, and damn men, as though he delighted in the sins and the great eternal torments of such poor wretches. It seems an iniquitous, cruel, intolerable thought to think of God, and it is this that has been such a stumbling block to so many great men down through the ages. And who would not stumble at it? I have stumbled at it myself more than once, down to the deepest pit of despair, so that I wished I had never been made a man. That was before I knew how health-giving that despair was, and how close to grace. Martin Luther